Welcome back to the Table Church Podcast, everybody. Thank you for listening. This is Pastor Phil. I'm fresh off of COVID, and I'm here with Pastor Megan, as far as we know. COVID veteran. Has no COVID. I have no COVID. Currently no COVID. I actually just shared some water from Phil's water bottle. You didn't drink out of my water bottle, but I did did pour some water into your water bottle. In case you had that image, no, that is not what happened, but I wanted some water in my water bottle. Yeah, I, uh, I was a little Phil bit, has, I was kind of sus about it. I Phil was like, I don't know about this. enormous water bottle. It's like a gallon. Yeah, you gave right? it to me. I did. Yes. I use it literally every literally day. Literally every day. And you fill it up at home with good water that tastes better than the water here. Mm-hmm. So all of that to say, that is why I took water from your water bottle. To be clear, I'm, I'm out of the COVID quarantine yeah. season. I am 100%. And... Um, Technically, I'm supposed to be masking in public still. Does the office count as public? No. I have <laughs> seen you wear one everywhere else that you I've are. I've been consistent. Or when people have been here or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I don't really count. <laughs> there are some people like, in your life where it's like, well, if the ship goes down. Right. <laughs> You're one of those people. I mean, yeah. We've made it this far. How did we get here? COVID. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'm fresh off of COVID, which I got at the Wesleyan Church General Conference, the 14th General Conference of the Wesleyan Church. This is a segue. Yeah. So the, 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 the General Conference is the biggest meeting in the land, for Wesleyans at least, which means it's really not that big of a meeting comparative to it's other big meetings. It's a very big, big deal to a very few people. <laughs> exactly. And... Um, it was the 14th one. We've been doing them since 1968 when the Wesleyan Methodists merged with the Pilgrim Holiness to form the Wesleyan Church. Mm-hmm. And um, it was an honor to be there. I So we were both there. Megan, you were there with your job for headquarters. Yes. Megan has a part-time remote job with Wesleyan headquarters in Indianapolis. And I was there as a delegate from our district. So I felt pretty cool. I got to vote on some pretty important things. And to set the scene, how many people are there? Like... How many delegates? There was 330-ish delegates, I know. And there's probably at least 300 more people there that are just there Mm -hmm. either for booths. I wouldn't be surprised if there was 1,000 or so. I think I I definitely estimate there was probably about 1,000 people there total, but Mm -hmm. only 300 of them. 330-ish. 30-ish. 336, something like that. I think it was 336. We're voting. Yeah. Yes. That means you're trapped in your seat. Mm-hmm. All day. It's just a huge business meeting, yes. and it's very parliamentary. People are like, Mr. Chairman, point of order, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I had to learn some of those phrases. That was fun. I definitely, like, uh, in seminary, for just a very hot of hottest minutes, they teach you parliamentary procedure if you don't mm-hmm. know it. Like, it's very, uh, it probably we only spent, like, a tiny portion of one one week of my mm-hmm. life. Um and I believe I utterly failed that quiz. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah, whatever. You yeah. learn by doing. <laughs> well, when I have to lead a meeting, we don't I'll have to it do it until we have like, if once we become an established church, we're still church plant. But once we're an established church and we have a board, like we have a board, but once it's an established board, then we'll probably do that kind of mm-hmm, stuff a bit. Because we have to use parliamentary procedure. Yeah. Yep, and you experience it every year at district conference. There's a district conference every year for your district, and then this is an every four-year event. Yeah, general conference. So now I'm a of pro. the North American Wesleyan Church. I'm a parliamentary pro. So uh, here's one of the big things that came out of this that might be of interest to any table church attender there um, or here listening. Um, we as as of now or up until this point, the Wesleyan Church has had a statement on the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. And we have not been big fans of speaking in tongues. That's not Phil and I personally. It's just Wesleyans. Wesleyans as a whole. We've not been fans. People older than us who have been Wesleyans will know it's in the past has been quite contentious. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read to you from the discipline, what we say about tongues. It says only a language readily understood by the congregation is to be used in public worship. The Wesleyan Church believes that the use of an ecstatic prayer language has no clear scriptural sanction or any pattern of established historical usage in the church. Therefore, the use of such a prayer language shall not be promoted among us. 
So what is so, and is not that saying? It's saying, it's saying, hey, you might do it on your own in the privacy of your own home, speaking in your tongues, but you know what? Keep it out of the church. We don't want it in our worship services. You you always take this like tone that's so. I'm channeling yeah. the I mean, Wesleyan forefathers. I've definitely heard people older <laughs> than me very passionate about this issue. You're but, trying to find context for why we would have had that stance, right? Yes, Is that what you're but doing? also, I mean, just to be clear, the Wesleyan Church has never said speaking in tongues is not a thing no it's never said it's not biblical in so much as like languages are expressed through the spirit in the bible so it does say earlier i, yes. I didn't uh-huh. read this part it says the wesleyan church believes in the miraculous use of languages and the interpretation of languages in its biblical and historical setting yeah so it's not like they're saying it's not real or that it's fake or that mm-hmm. you're creating it right it, it's saying it, it we're establishing that we believe speaking in tongues is something it that happens the spirit may promote may but do. it doesn't happen in our churches but we are saying we won't practice it in our churches worship settings things like that because it can't be interpreted and is not necessary um it's because of the in the 60s and stuff <laughs> like the jesus movement uh I guess they were just getting kind of crazy with this. And, and if you know, like AG or Foursquare, things like that, there's a lot of, cause we're a, a holiness movement mm-hmm. and in the holiness movement, there is a wide variety of expression. Yeah. And we're a part of that, but we're the most, we're the straights, not the hippies. <laughs> and so the Wesleyan <laughs> said, no, we're not doing it. Uh, uh-uh. uh. However, it is a new day. In the Wesleyan yeah, Church. Yeah, this is actually a very big deal. We have changed our language when it comes to speaking in tongues. Let me read to you what our discipline will now say as a result of the 14th General Conference of the Wesleyan Church. It says, if speaking in, tongue, if speaking in tongues occurs publicly in a church gathering, yep. so now we say it can happen. Mm-hmm. If speaking in tongues occurs publicly in a church gathering, scripture requires one person to speak at a time and an interpretation to be provided so all in attendance, especially unbelievers, may understand and be edified. Mm-hmm. So, Which is frankly the way a lot of Wesleyan churches were practicing it anyway. And frankly the way like settings. the New Testament practiced it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so. some were quite serious about it and now um, yeah. we don't have to argue for that anymore. Yeah. We don't have to hide. So, hey, if you go to table church and you speak in tongues, I want you to know you, you can step into the light. I don't think that you, I don't think you would have felt like you couldn't before anyway. If you go too far, we'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does go on to to clarify. It says, pastors and leaders are to exercise discretion in light of these instructions to ensure our gatherings bear the fruit of unity and order in a manner helpful and intelligible to those hearing the gospel. Hey. There's nothing there I disagree with. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we do actually personally have a lot of stories about um, like funny, like in the spirit moments that we've experienced. But one of them is kind of funny that's coming to mind right now. Um, is um, Like there was a time that I was in, in our church office in Sioux Falls in a, like in a prayer circle, basically. And our friend Kevin Andrews, was sitting next to me and when we were done like this was just like a staff prayer meeting and I was like oh my gosh Kevin was praying in tongues so loud I could barely think (laughs) and then Kevin was like what like he 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 was like praying but he was not talking out loud but I could hear it Mm. which Mm -hmm. is like so weird Mm. and I don't know I didn't have an interpreter, I guess. But it was just like one of those weird times where like, these are things that like, if you tell a non-Christian about this stuff, who hasn't experienced these things before, they're like, you're completely making that up. <laughs> well, not necessarily so. So, yeah. Um, anyway, that's Maybe a big, that's a big change. Maybe I was seriously edified. That's a big change. I just don't know what it was saying. Here's my prayer. Here's my <laughs> prayer. It's that um, this is more than just about tongues. It's about spiritual gifts. It's about an awareness of the movement of the Holy Spirit among us. And that's what we're trying to become more aware mm-hmm. of as a church. And I'm happy that we took this step because, number one, I think it's more biblical. But number two, we need to become people who are lie and chase and yearn for an ache for the Holy Spirit in our midst. And I don't know, the previous statement was essentially saying to the people who are most aware, like the people who are most concerned and 
um, I don't know, uh, the word would be, the, like people who live out the more ecstatic gifts. Yeah, or um, just like practicing things that they got a nudge of and then they pursued it mm-hmm. because the spirit was leading them there, but then they have felt like they've needed to. We, we weren't hospitable to those yeah. people. And hopefully this is a move. Not mm-hmm. that like what's something buried in the discipline necessarily does anything. But and again, it's something that I think most, many Wesleyan churches were discerning and practicing it in this way anyway. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's probably true. Recently in the last 10 years or so especially. Mm-hmm. But this was a big deal before. But it's because there's been a lot of abuse of that. You know, like mm-hmm. we both know people who have been forced to speak in tongues before they're able to like yeah. leave a room. <laughs> My wife has a story <laughs> yeah. about that. So, I mean, it's, pretty funny. every rule has a story yeah. and we made one because there were a lot of abuses of it's this, true. but you got to let the pendulum swing. It's true. I was also um, really pleased at General Conference with, number one, the tone of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like we were doing some serious debate. I mean, the thing I just read Especially had some... in the current cultural climate. Right. It was much more productive than you yep. would see. Absolutely. We, I mean, not only did we talk about tongues, we, we had memorials that had like pretty serious financial repercussions for our denomination, for local churches, um, all sorts of different things that were pretty significant at times. And everybody was very cordial. And listen, listen that is not the case in every denominational general mm-hmm. conference. In fact, just recently, one mainline church is split, you know, because they just can't, they can't, um, they can't be unified over certain things, but it was very clear that the Wesleyan church remains very unified. That was pretty cool. The other thing I loved was how diverse the experience was. Mm-hmm. Um, the delegates themselves were mostly white, but not totally. Mm-hmm. And I will say they, they just have done such a good job of um, having a global uh, appreciation, look, feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and absolutely... Um as much as possible whenever able to provide English and Spanish on Mm -hmm. equal standing. Exactly. Like every, first of all, the praise team I counted, they had 11 people on the worship team. Three of them were white. Yeah. And literally every song I think was just about 50, 50 English Spanish. Yeah. They really like, I think it was basically like they would just Mm -hmm. like, uh, and that's the way that it is at the Wesleyan Seminary. Mm-hmm. Like everything that you do is sort of as much as we are able, as much as is possible. English and Spanish are equals yeah. in like the worship services, prayer, mm-hmm. those types of things. Mm-hmm. So, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I, I walked away from it feeling good about being a Wesleyan. I mm-hmm. really did. I just think, um, and diversity wasn't the only thing that they did well, but there's all sorts of other cultural issues that we discussed mm-hmm. and and perhaps did it, it well. there are things that i the thing that especially working for headquarters for last year and a half or so mm-hmm. um the thing that you notice right away is how global we are in practice right and that's not the case in every individual congregation but the leadership makes it a priority to always be thinking as much as we're able in our imperfect ability to think mm-hmm. of things to be global in how we speak what we say how we considered making decisions things like that and when you one of the things that i noticed when i started working at headquarters was just how much we consider everything that we do and it reminds me very much of of how we would do things with inner varsity very sure. much like a um a mindset to always be considering mm-hmm. other cultures how people perceive things I was a part of this um, new learning community called the Kingdom Force Leadership Executive Leadership Institute. Um, they admit it's a very long name. That sounds like a big deal. <laughs> but um, it's people from all over, not just America, but the world. And there's people who, you know, speaking all different languages and all uniting together, you know, to grow mm-hmm. people from Mexico, people from Africa, people from England. Um all Wesleyans, all people who are not traditionally pointed to as like the next leader. Yeah. So, um, there's so many things that we're doing as a denomination to see honor and promote a full kingdom perspective. I think the church should look like heaven 
you know, and mm-hmm. the Wesleyan church is, I think, doing a good job of trying to lead in that, mm-hmm. in that, in that manner. Yeah. And we're not saying that every individual congregation is that way, but mm-hmm. we are attempting mm-hmm. to move that way yeah. as much as we can. What's the language they use? We can't exactly just control it, but we can be open to it. Sure. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You've <laughs> said it a couple different times. Just like, we can't just say like, we want to have a congregation that looks like heaven, but we can do a lot of things sure. to be open to that mm-hmm. happening and to work for it. Yep. So yep. you can't make it, but you, you can. can't force it, but you can yeah. create conditions. And that's what the Wesleyan Church it. does. Yeah. And so we have a lot of growth to take place. So if, you're, if your experience hasn't been that way, um, we understand that. Hmm. But as a denomination, that's really a thing that's very valuable to us. So Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. Next segment. <laughs> How's that for a there's, transition? There's there's um, probably not much. I mean, we are going to transition from talking about the General Conference of the Wesleyan Church, um, which is essentially, I mean, if you were going to compare it literally, literarily um, with what we're going to talk about next, it's sort of like the equivalent to the Quidditch World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> and now you know what we're talking about next. <laughs> We're going to make a hard turn. We're going to talk about Harry Potter. So Let's are you do done it. checking your texts? Yeah, sorry. Phil was just looking at his phone. So I was stalling a bit because I was oh. like, are you coming back? I was thinking, okay. thinking about it. <laughs> okay. Um, there's like smoke on the street. Is there a fire outside? Uh, Let's just keep trucking. No, we're just going to proceed like normal. Maybe it's dirt. <laughs> um. All right, so we have been doing this series called Nerd Zone. Phil, did you get a chance to catch up on that last episode? I was afraid yet? you were going to ask me. Yeah, because the a answer to. is no. Our time has been um, time of recording and time of that happening and time in between has been. I mean, there's been general conference. There's been yeah. COVID. Mm-hmm. There's also been a six-hour car ride to St. Louis and back, <coughs> but it still didn't make it happen. I wasn't going to say that. I, I here's the deal. I haven't listened to any podcast lately. I've been yep. listening to books. Yeah. Been into books. I go into phases where I'm listening to a lot of books and I have to go catch up on podcasts later or times when I've been in such a good, like, what I call my murder shows, but like really good true crime pro- mm-hmm. podcasts and stuff like that where you get so absorbed into it and you don't want to watch TV or read another mm-hmm. book or anything. Like, you just like are so into it for like 18 hours. Uh, I'm into These books. Phases. Yeah. You're into books right now. I might listen to it That's someday. Fine. Anyway, so we've had one episode so far of Nerd Zone where we talked about complicated board games which was That's pretty very nerdy. fun pretty nerdy we have gotten a lot of fun feedback about that episode so that's been great um uh so today we have a couple by the way we have a couple more episodes coming up soon again it's kind of difficult to coordinate people's schedules to be able to record at a time when everyone is able so mm-hmm. the schedule can't be as consistent but today we are going to talk about Harry Potter. And this is Megan's nerd zone. This is my nerd zone. I've, we've said it before. <laughs> if they awarded a PhD in <laughs> Harry Potter, I think Megan would have it. If you, I mean, what we're going to talk about today, there were a couple of guardrails that I put into place. But the biggest, most important one that I want to say at the beginning is I wanted to have a conversation about Harry Potter where we do not give away any spoilers mm-hmm. and essentially don't give away nearly anything about the actual plot at all okay so that's a fine line to walk mm-hmm. let's see how we do so i am firmly committed to not doing that i may slip up i'm pretty worried about myself might slip up. i'm pretty worried about myself <laughs> listen i i've read harry potter a couple times but i do not have the grasp of the content and so you you will be able to walk nimbly through this conversation in a way i don't think i'll be able to mm-hmm. do and so i don't mm-hmm. know if i really screw up bad we can go back and edit it i out. submit myself to leading you through this process, do you accept? Yeah, I okay. I will submit myself to you leading me through a Harry Potter discussion. We've mutually submitted to trying to walk through this conversation for the next forty-five minutes without ever giving away the best stuff about the story, just in case you haven't read it yet. Because if you ha- if you can't tell, Phil and I think you should. Like I know people don't like to be told they should. I would do start something. there actually. If you have not read Harry Potter, yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, you should read it. (laughs) Do you remember when you first read Harry Potter? Yeah, yeah. I listened to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what device? Yeah, the Potter Pod. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I had an iPod (laughs) simply full of that Megan downloaded all the books on for me. This is in like, okay, so in 2010, Phil and I went to Zambia 
and then we got back and I think it was your second trip there it was my first and it was like um it was like a really heavy trip like it was a very mm -hmm. exhausting on every level very like emotional very good trip but like mm -hmm. it was like a lot yeah it was a lot and I got back and I was like I need to go somewhere else in my brain like you know and mm -hmm. and I was like you know I'd always uh for those of you who don't know <laughs> I majored in English literature in my undergrad and um <laughs> have you ever seen Avenue Q no Avenue Q has a song where they're like what do you do with a BA in English <laughs> <laughs> If you haven't seen Avenue Q, uh, Google it before you watch it. I don't know. It's like a an inappropriate Sesame Street. It's a musical. Okay. Anyway, um, you know, so I had this BA in English literature, <laughs> and um, part of that, one of the classes that I took was called juvenile literature, and you go throughout history. But um, I read the first Harry Potter book in college in like the year two thousand. Mm -hmm. So they first were published in like 1997 so they're pretty new and I just was like reading a lot in college yeah. naturally and so I didn't I didn't like pick up and start reading the rest of them I sort of like read the first one and moved on and and frankly the way that I read it was like so entrenched in the the work of a class like it was not okay. just it wasn't a solitary experience it was like read this and read three other books at the same time in the same week and mm -hmm. then compare and contrast them and you know look at motifs and themes and stuff like that so it wasn't exactly like reading at the park sure. and like taking your time so i had never read beyond that so i thought i should i've always meant to go back and read these books i'm gonna do it so it's like 2010 2011 i get the books i started reading the first one i brought it from a friend that i worked with <clears throat> and then i ended up reading the entire series in two weeks <laughs> yeah that's that's cruising <laughs> which was i like could not quit and it was just like the perfect thing when i'd gone through this like really big experience and i kind of just need some time to process and do something else it was a perfect way to not only escape but process what mm -hmm. i had just experienced mm -hmm. um which we'll talk about more in a second but um and i one of my favorite memories of that experience of reading them for the first time because my kids were way too small to read them at the time they were like five years old five sure. six years old um the oldest ones so i i read them and then my husband jim started reading them and what we would do is i would finish a book and immediately hand it off to him so we both read mm -hmm. all of it within like a three-week time span um and one of my favorite memories is i had finished book three and was just gonna start book four. And so like, I have this very clear memory of Jim and I sitting in bed at night and I've got, I had just finished book three where it was so good, I locked myself in the bathroom so my kids couldn't interrupt me so I could finish <laughs> it. Like yeah. if you've read book three, you know, it gets yeah. like the plot is like, it Think, is Things go else. to another level yes. in book three. It really, it, yeah, it really. It goes from children's literature to adult literature a little bit. So from like, in book three, like the plot at the end of book three is just so sinking good that like for the last few chapters, I was just like speed reading it in my bathroom, sitting on top of my bathroom counter. Like that's what <laughs> I was doing. Um, like hiding from my children. And then I handed the book off to Jim and I started book four and he starts book three while we're sitting there. And then book four, if you've read that, when it starts, it's like, whoa, mm -hmm. like some stuff happens. Yeah. Like, whoa. And I remember just being like, Ugh! and I'm, I'm like totally immersed in this experience. And like Jim is just starting this other book and we're both like voraciously trying to read as much as we can before we have to go to bed. <laughs> 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 like kids. And it was so much fun. We've never done that with any other mm -hmm. series We've ne we never read the same books. We're never like, yeah. I just finished this book and it was excellent. I'm going to hand it off to you. We do not read the same books. So Harry Potter deepened your marriage. It really did. And then I remember, I don't know, I was telling you about it. I must have been because I was like, these books are so good. And I think you were going to go on a trip or something like that. I think we're driving to Indiana to see Natalie's parents. Yeah. And uh, we had we had gotten all of the CD books because this was before audiobooks were like an mm -hmm. MP3 thing. There was no like... There was, I don't even know if Audible existed, do you? I don't know. But it was more like books on CD. So we had all of those and we had, um, I think, uploaded them 
as MP3s, you took those and put them on an iPod, like an yeah. old. It was an old iPod. iPod, like the big ones that are like yeah. the size of a phone. Yeah, it was still a touchscreen. Like yeah. it wasn't the one with the little it was scrolly an wheel. Touch. But yeah. it was an old one, one of the earlier generations of that. And we called it the Potter Pod. And it's still, it's we still have it. Yeah. It's still all that's on it. I don't <laughs> think I have a way to turn it on. I don't think I have a charging cord for it. We have the charging cord and we still have our original old... like iPod Touch. It was mm -hmm. a big deal when iPods became touch iPods. Mm -hmm. Like that was a huge deal. Well, anyway, we should charge that thing up. I'd love to listen to a little Harry Potter. Yes, I. we still have our charger and ours, you can charge it, but like it won't. Anyway, you can charge it up and see if it still works. Hey. All right, so let let's get to um, let's get to the meat of the discussion. Here. So anyway, I I will say like whatever we're gonna say today, I could say a lot more. So if this is something that you are really into, it is my secret nerd zone. That's definitely true. <laughs> um, okay, so I know you have some things prepared. I do to go through. I have a three point list because I want to just pepper you with some questions too. Mm -hmm. So let's get through your list first. No, just pepper the <laughs> okay. questions. Okay, go for it. Uh, who's your favorite Harry Potter character? Oh, I mean, without a doubt, I would say my favorite is McGonagall, but also Molly Weasley. Both of them mm. have like deeper character qualities that okay. I. Can you go into that at all? No, I don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to spoil it? I don't want to spoil it. Okay. What's, what's your favorite Harry Potter book? Um, I would say that uh, book six is probably like the one that. I feel like the payoff is almost the biggest in book six okay. as far as some of the character things and things like that. Book seven is excellent, but it's like, it's like a separate, it's like apples to oranges. You cannot compare that um, mm -hmm. to the other books. It's like mm -hmm. its own separate world, mm -hmm. even though it, it is the climax yeah. to all seven books. It's also like its own thing. Like you can't really say book seven is better than book six because it's just like the, on another level, mm. you know, I was going to say book seven. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you I can, can say it's your favorite. I mean, a favorite mm. is a relative thing. Like it's true. You can, I'm, can I tell you my favorite scene in Harry Potter? Yes. I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm going to do my best. I'm just going to refer or reference <laughs> obliquely. But it's the it's the, it's the the sort of Gryffindor scene mm -hmm. in the woods. I, I just think, like, I, I remember the emotional, <laughs> like, I remember the emotion I felt. It's chapter 19 of book seven. When, the title is called when, The Silver Doe. When Ron blurts out, are you mental? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I remember the emotional rush and thrill of that scene and so I well. Because I, I, I first experienced it when I was listening yeah, to it. Yeah, you were listening. And the guy, the narrator on the audiobooks Jim is Dale. genius. Yes. Is genius. And I just remember that line so well mm -hmm. the way that he delivered it and the payoffs of those little moments mm -hmm. that you you cannot understand. it's been building the whole series yes right like that relationship is building the whole series and i don't know uh, i'm getting a little i'm getting goosebumps right now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. get a little choked up right now yeah and i remember um maybe before i remember why you read harry potter i mean like you you had a moment to read it because you were going on a trip probably but i remember mm -hmm. there was a moment where um, you were talking about like seeing uh, a sword like when you were praying mm -hmm. and I immediately blurted out, did it have a ruby hilt? <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, what are you talking yeah, about? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know yet. I didn't know. Oh, when anyway. I read it to Bella, I we got to that <laughs> scene and I said, Bella, this is my favorite scene in the whole series. Mm -hmm. And she's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta experience the books and get your own favorite scene but like seriously can't impose that's a it good on others one. oh my gosh i know i'm tearing up just would, would you, i mean how would you answer the question of favorite scene i always answer that that is my favorite but also because of some things that we're going to talk about later um there's really deep arthurian legend imagery mm -hmm. in that chapter like mm -hmm. it's not just the payoff of the actual story oh absolutely it's all of the imagery it's everything that it's doing to advance the plot forward it's the fact that there are things that happen in that scene that um are leading to like the greatest payoffs of the entire series yeah like, it's like it's, it, a it, it's like cashing in moment. finally on you've yes. just been adding to the bank account a little at a time mm -hmm. for a long time and then you finally get to cash in in that uh, moment. So good. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
There are many great scenes. I think uh, I will say. I'm, I'm, I, always I feel say, really affirmed that that's your favorite scene too. Yeah, I. I didn't is, know that. That is my favorite scene. I would always have answered it that way, but I will say there there are a few moments that always stick out as just precious and sweet, like um, when Harry and Ron first meet on the Hogwarts Express mm. and the trolley comes by and yeah. Ron has these junky sandwiches mm-hmm. because his parents can't afford anything different. And Harry has tons of gold, mm-hmm. you know, lots of galleons, but has never had a family. So mm-hmm. there's like this moment and this is this happens throughout the series where there are these moments where you've got and we'll talk about this later too, um, characters who are um, mirrors of one another and they complete one another in right. some sort of way. Mm-hmm. And so like Ron has a beautiful family and yep. no money. And Harry has lots of money from an inheritance and has never had a family. And so you see Harry so happy to buy one of everything on the trolley cart mm-hmm. <laughs> and share it with Ron um, because he's never had money to spend on anything either. And he's never tried any of these things. And so mm-hmm. there are just these like sweet little moments where you see, um, you know, the reason Harry's happy isn't the money. It's yeah. that he has somebody to spend yep. this experience with. Yeah, no, that's good. You know, like those types of things. Moments I think like I think that. my second scene would be it would be Neville's big moment at the end. Mhm. Which is ruined in the movies. Agreed. It's not as powerful. Mm-hmm. There's also something else that happens at the very end of the books that I'm not going to say because it involves a wand. Okay. But yeah. there's something that is like oh. so brilliant yeah. that happens at the end of the books involving a wand. And um the movies get it wrong. So. Yep. I I don't I have a hard time recommending the movies to be quite honest. Yeah, I mean it's just like if you need a quick fix. I will always say like if you just want a quick fix of seeing Voldemort get smote. Which sure. that's not much of a spoiler. Yeah. You know that nobody's going to read these books and be like the best part was when right. Voldemort won. Right. It's true. <laughs> World was ruined. Anyway. So any other, okay. Any other no, go for it. I'll, if my, I think of list. anything, I'll, I'll throw it out there. Okay. So I've really thought this through, y'all. And I'm really working hard to talk about this book without giving away plot points. <laughs> so, um, so what I wanted to do was really the nerd zone um, that is either something that will make you be like, yes, that's so true. If you've read the books and you love them. Or if you've never read the books, you could listen to this and say, that piques my interest. I, I think I want to dive in. Okay. So we're going to talk about three ways to understand Harry Potter as excellent literature. Okay. Okay. And I really believe these are true. I don't think these are arguable. I think mm-hmm. they're just true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So no debate. In other words, we're going to talk about three ways that explain why these books are so good. Like everybody okay. that reads them for the most part is like, that's a good book. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't really ever hear people say, those books weren't that great. Right. Like people understand them to be good books. Yeah. Even if, you know. I, I did hear what's her name say it. Um, Who? Oh, the English professor used to be at Liberty. Oh, Karen Swallow Pryor. Yeah, she's not a Harry Potter fan. Well, she does love lots of literature that Harry Potter is mm-hmm. referencing. So. Yeah. She. She. Also, she likes to be a bit of a stand she's guy little, every once in a while. She's condescending towards adults who are crazy about Harry Potter because she says it's children's literature. Yeah. You should I, be reading adult Frankenstein. Yeah. She, I mean, she loves Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. I would say she's just, I don't know, wrong. <laughs> I say <laughs> you have missed it. You have missed the mark. You've missed the point. Yeah. You've okay. missed the spirit of the law. And here. she's not dead yet. You know, mm-hmm. her mind can be she changed. Can, she can be swayed. It's not over. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. A bit of background, I suppose, before we start. So J.K. Rowling wrote these books when she was a nobody. Um, so the first book, The Philosopher's Stone, has a different title in the U.S. So in the U.K., it was published in 1997. Bloomsbury published it. It's called The Philosopher's Stone in the U.S., Scholastic published it, and that was one change that they made from the UK English. They changed it from the Philosopher's Stone to the Sorcerer's Stone Mm -hmm. because they didn't think kids would understand that reference, which Mm -hmm. is, it's a reference to alchemy. Yeah. Um, Google it. We don't have time for all these things. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Google alchemy. (laughs) 
<laughs> so the alchemical process that of transformation that literally when we're talking about books like characters go through a process hmm. of becoming okay. and purifying things like that um but there's actually like a practice i'm again google it alchemy the mm -hmm. practice of turning what substances is it? into other into substances yeah. yeah um okay blah 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 I can't, I can't do it. I can't take every <laughs> diving board and take a swim. That's true. <laughs> okay. You're just going to have to pick so, and choose. So Harry Potter is pretty ubiquitous in culture right now. And it has been for two decades now. Okay. Mm -hmm. So right now it's everywhere. Like the movies have been out for a while. Like it's everywhere. There's theme parks. And um, I don't know what's going to happen to the movies although I'm sure they'll be made again. Right. And I don't know what's going to happen with this theme park, although I'm sure they'll stick around for a while. Mm -hmm. But I really believe these books are classics. Like, they mm -hmm. are going to remain. Mm -hmm. Like, Universal Studios can close its doors. Those right. books are going to live on. Sure. Like, I really think that that's true. I believe I believe that's true. Yeah. So, um, these are books that are about teenagers growing up in the 90s in England mm -hmm. <laughs> but I have heard stories of people who've read them um, you know kids who like grown up in like Iran countries in Africa mm -hmm. you know South America kids from anywhere read these books yeah. and they're relatable you know I was magic I was actually talking to Moses about Harry Potter and he's talking about how relatable it was to him mm -hmm. growing up in <laughs> Kenya yes. which is a former British colony uh -huh. and they're talking about you know, going off to Hogwarts and, you uh -huh. know, and precepts and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Head, head boys and all that stuff. They had yep. all that and you know, in his younger days. <laughs> and so in a way it's just cool that an African yeah. identifies in key ideas better mm -hmm. than I would, even as I'm a, like a white Westerner. Yes. And yeah. even if you grew up, like I said, like Afghanistan, Iran, they're super popular in these places because there's universal experiences mm -hmm. um, that we all have. So, I honestly think, um, <laughs> this is an aside, I know you're yes. trying to make progress. This is part of the power I find in, this is going to be more controversial, but I mean, it, it's in Peter Parker. Like, oh, why, yeah. why is Spider-Man such a, a moving character? Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about like the movies. I'm more talking about like Iron Man. I'm talking about the yeah. enduring sense of the comics over, over decades, not centuries, over decades. And it's because of this real, raw, relatable teenage-ness that is... Peter Parker mm -hmm. and and Harry Potter's the same way. Like there's nothing more vulnerable than a teenager without a solid like family situation mm -hmm. um, and nothing more admirable than someone who above all odds of adversity is like smart and right. is like willing to go get it and right. figure things out. And, and, and but also to, like the, the way it's done is it incorporates and brings to life just the awkwardness of teenage years that we mm -hmm. all understand, you know, highly relatable. Nobody yep. relates to Tony Stark. Right. Like. <laughs> Except maybe Elon Musk. That's yeah. about it. There's like five people mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah, you can have like kind of wish fulfillment when you're reading yeah. Tony Stark and stuff like that. But it's not when same. it comes to Peter Parker, you're like, nah, I, like there's a relatability there. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So that is why good stories work the way they do. Okay. Yes. So I'm going to give you an overview of the three things that we're going to talk about. And then we're going to circle back and talk about them. So... Um, I think the magic of Harry Potter is that the narrative works on a few different levels all at the same time. And you may not even see them because it's so well done. You don't even see how it works. You don't see how it's made. Like the watch just tells time. Mm -hmm. You don't understand mm -hmm. all of the cogs and wheels. So here's the threefold genius of Harry Potter. If I was going to say it in three points, which I hope can be short. Number one, the scaffolding. So that's the infrastructure of the literary function. So it's like how it's written, like the technical qualities of it, like how it's accomplished, mm -hmm. how the story is told. The second part is the narrative. That's the actual story itself. Okay, so mm -hmm. um, the narrative drive of Harry Potter. And then the third one is the transcendence of it. So that's like the deeper messages and allusions and that are like kind of sewn into the fabric of how the story is told. Those are the things that connect and transport us. Yeah. So it's beyond just a flat story. There's something timeless about it because it's connecting us to these deeper things. I think everything okay. you just said also applies to the Gospels, just to be clear. Yeah, I'm actually going <laughs> to mention that later. 
Harry Potter as Christian literature. That's what we're going to title this. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd talk to you all day about that. So <laughs> I actually want to talk about that third one first, the transcendence piece. So it's good that you mentioned that. So okay. And then couched within that is the narrative drive really too. But transcendence first. Okay, so have you ever heard of, okay, um, first of all, there's a religious historian named Mirka Il- Mirka. Eliade, I haven't said his name out loud okay. for a while. Mir- <laughs> Mirka Eliade mm-hmm. is a religious historian. He was at the University of Chicago. Um, very prolific writer, thinker from like the like mid-century time okay. period. Um, I think he probably died in the 80s. So um, he was born in Bucharest, eventually comes to America. He's written a ton about the religious experiences of people across time so like if you think about religion as like man seeking god or like Mm -hmm. a higher power Mm -hmm. he looks at that over time and kind of synthesizes what's common about our religious experiences like what are we sure seeking okay so he has this book it's called the sacred and the profane yeah i've heard of that book yeah okay The full title is The Sacred and the Profane, The Nature of Religion and the Significance of Religious Myth, Symbolism, and Ritual Within Life and Culture. So that's his life's work. We're just going to call it S&P. Yeah. So The Sacred and Profane. (laughs) So and profane is, of course, just things that are like not not sacred. sacred. Like we talk about it like it's like a naughty word. But that's not really it. It's just like there's sacred things and profane things. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in that book... Eliade says, non-religious man in the pure state is a comparatively rare phenomenon, even in the most desacralized of modern societies. And why is that? Why is it hard to find a purely non-religious person? Okay, so he says this to some length, but essentially a small volume could be written on the myths of modern man, on the mythologies camouflaged in the plays that he enjoys in the books that he reads. Even the act of reading serves an important religious or mythic function. Even reading includes a mythological function because through reading, the modern man succeeds in obtaining an escape from time comparable to the emergence from time affected by myths. Okay. You should unpack that a little bit. Yes. So, for example, even in a desacralized culture. I totally got it all. Just pretend I did. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm circling back. (laughs) I just wanted to quote him in full. Um, So, even in a culture where, like, people would say, we do not believe in God. Mm -hmm. Okay. Where, like, everything is just natural. Yeah. There's nothing sacred. Everything is just its state. Yeah. We see it. Story, even in those cultures, still provides a religious meaning-seeking function. Sure, and transports okay. us. Because yep. humans fundamentally seek this transportation mm-hmm. up out of just what we see here yep. into deeper meaning. Yep, and it also brings coherence to the, to the universe that mm-hmm. doesn't inherently exist in a mechanical okay. view of the world. So he's just saying a non-religious person is like impossible. Like everyone to some degree, you know, you're mm-hmm. going to find religion in there if you're calling religion this thing where we are seeking yeah meaning outside of get food right don't die mm-hmm. right. okay so um he's got another quote whether modern man kills time with a detective story or enters such a foreign temporal universe as is represented by any novel like harry potter reading projects him out of his personal duration and incorporates him into other rhythms, makes him live in another history. Yes. So, Reading takes us into another world. If LeVar Burton taught us anything, so if you open a book, you can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. That's Agreed. What saying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, fundamentally, I do believe it's true, based on Eliade's argument, that Harry Potter is a religious experience. <laughs> It's a profound one. I it, really think that's true. It transports us. Yes. Takes us to a higher plane. Mm-hmm. And it, um, it, 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 it is a, it brings coherence to, um, a lot of big questions in life. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, hear me, I'm putting an asterisk by all of these statements. Like, I think the Bible actually does all these yeah. things, but <laughs> Harry Potter takes a good stab at it as far as human written literature mm-hmm. goes. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So in in the confines of what we're looking at as a religious experience, Harry Potter is one. Mm-hmm. And that's why people who are even not religious, yeah. quote, quote, are experiencing something transcendent. Yeah. We're, we're like meaning this. making machines. Yes. Right. And uh, like an epic like Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series. <laughs> Um, it just does an ex- excellent job of kind of calling us into something mm-hmm. deeper as far as identifying where we draw meaning in life, yep. stuff like that. And a really quick aside, so on Christians and Harry Potter, which anyone listening probably is old enough then to know that there's been like a history of there's a history the church uh, mm-hmm. being mixed on these things, mixed reception at best. Yeah, but um, I like to always point out that most of the symbols and themes and devices and motifs and names and plot functions are directly linked to 12 centuries of English literature, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which like all Western art is deeply influenced and driven by the church. Um, You know, for good or for ill, it's true. So there's there's a lot of legit Christian references under the hood of Harry Potter. And some of them are on the surface. Many of them are kind of hidden just under the water. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know to look for them or don't understand that, it's okay. You're still really getting a good story. But Mm -hmm. if you are a person who goes underneath the surface with that and starts investigating those things, there's quite a bit there. To be clear, she's not, J.K. Rowling's not a Christian. Well, I mean, she's Anglican. Okay. So, I mean, I don't know about her personal situation. All right. But she certainly writes deeply informed sure. as an Anglican, um, as was C.S. Lewis. Right. So, um, and so these books, the entire Harry Potter series is very indisputably informed and formed mm-hmm. by Christianity. So um, even though the Christian illusions are explicit, they don't exclude readers who are outside that tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, again, mm-hmm. like I said, a lot of it is under the surface and it's just... It's a it's context, but it's not necessarily going to change your experience of understanding the books. Cool. So, um, anyway, this was like an interesting thing. Like I like to point out, and there's so much that you can see if you're looking for it. As far as that goes, so diving into the literary allusions and the text and understanding their background in church history is one of the most fascinating ways to understand the brilliance of these books on a deeper level. Hmm. So, um. And I've honestly, on a second note, I would say I've personally never found another book or really anything in popular culture that is more applicable to understanding the Christian life Mm -hmm. (laughs) than Harry Potter. So we're talking about like something that you can relate to, something that have like people have a shared cultural experience of it. Like Mm -hmm. you can reference Harry Potter for just about any life circumstance that you're in. Right. You know. There's probably something in There's Harry Potter that touches there. it. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. it's true. And Megan has made those references to me. I've tested this throughout my life. Yeah, in many ways. <laughs> well, it's like that. It's like X in Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, I, you know. I mean, yeah. Uh, so th- talking about like spiritual warfare, um, family trauma doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Shame, yeah. fear, love, relationships, all of friendship, it, deepest things, bravery. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Light over dark. All of that. So okay. That's just, I want to just say that. I think. Also, um, school. <laughs> yeah, and just like not wanting to do your homework. Writing papers. Yeah. Trying to write a broom. <laughs> Who among us has not struggled? Um, all right. So, second point narrative. So, this is the point that most people grab onto these books just basically based on the story being good. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I've argued that really the most formational element of the books is that transcendent element. So the fact that it's taking you somewhere. somewhere. People say that about Harry Potter or lots of good books all the time. Mm -hmm. They're like, just escape. Like you're escaping somewhere to understand your own world better. Mm -hmm. In the end, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. So um, the books take us somewhere. They take us to a well-formed complex world that yeah. mirrors our own, but is also you could say it's other. eschatological. Yes, you could. <laughs> so it's a world that mirrors our own, but is also completely other than our own. So it's a safe space where we can process our own world, mm-hmm. um, all within this context that brings us joy. It, it helps us feel understood. You know, all those other things. So, um, so I mentioned there's these three parts. So there's the transcendence and now the narrative part. So the elements of story itself, that's really the middle of the Oreo. So there's those three parts. Transcendence is one of the chocolate wafer. Okay. Things. 
Okay. Important. Yeah. But it's an Oreo only when you have all three. Narrative is that good stuff in the middle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the narrative is the good stuff that holds everything together. It makes the whole experience worthwhile. Like you could talk about transcendent things. Yep. And you could have something that's like got a lot of structure. But if the story isn't good, there's nothing there. The right. Oreo is yep. like a Hydrox. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So primarily, if we're going to talk about narrative too much, we're going to give too much away. But I will say it doesn't matter how good the story is. If it's not held together by the top and bottom of that Oreo, the transcendence and the scaffolding, it's all going to fall apart. It's just goo. Okay. So this story, as far as this goes, I will just say if you've looked at the hero's journey, um, and again, we're not going to talk about it much because it will be almost impossible to actually talk about sure. the books and the stories, mm-hmm. but we've already alluded to it in the beginning, so I'm not going to spend time on it now. But like the idea that these stories build, you mm-hmm. know, they're so deeply moving. Um, there is such like a beautiful, transcendent journey that Harry and many characters right. go on throughout every book and then the seven books as a whole mm-hmm. that are so deeply held to that tradition of like the journey yeah. from the beginning to the end yep. of something. Um, and, and that it, is why they're so meaningful to it, people. It's the journey and then it's the way that like every detail comes comes around, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like nothing is wasted in Harry Potter. Nope. <laughs> and like if you think about and that's going to lead into our next point, which I really think we could spend more time on. Because everybody knows these are good stories. You just right. know they're good stories. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason that you can experience them so well as a good story. But, like, have you ever heard somebody tell a joke badly? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, if you have kids, you've heard somebody oh, yeah. tell a joke badly, right? Mm-hmm. Or a story badly. There can be a story that's deeply meaningful right. and incredible, but the way that someone tells it, makes or breaks it mm-hmm. right the power doesn't really change but your reception of it is entirely affected by how the story is told to you right so these are very good stories but the third part that i want to talk about the top of the oreo is the scaffolding which you mm-hmm. just mentioned the fact that the literary functions that technical work that mm-hmm. jk rowling put into telling the story how it's written mm-hmm. is what makes it stick yeah and so well like the thing that comes to my mind is what we were talking about earlier is when, when Ron says in that crucial scene, are you mental? Um, like she's, um, I don't know. She's been building Ron, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and to where you don't even know, you don't have to read said Ron after that. No, you don't. And you it just know even it was, say it. You it was just, just no, it was Ron, you know? And, um, <laughs> and yeah, so somehow there's a whole, world of like character building in that mm-hmm. in those three words mm-hmm. that appear at the exact perfect moment mm-hmm. yep and so you've got this amazing story but the way you tell the story creates a payoff that transcends even the quality of the story itself if we just tell it like linearly mm-hmm. right and that's true like there are voices she builds voices she builds like patterns of speech she builds all of these different things that end up creating an experience mm-hmm. that's really just like uh up and above any of these one parts on their own so um i really think that that's what makes a story timeless so excellent technical execution Mm-hmm. of a profound narrative is what makes a good story a classic. Mm-hmm. I, I really think that that's true. So that's excellent technical yeah, execution, so execution. Excellent technical execution of a of profound a, narrative yeah. is what makes a good story a classic story. Mm-hmm. So if you think about like, you could see something beautiful in life and you take a picture of it with your iPhone. Yeah. And if you don't quite know what you're doing to take a picture, you can never quite capture it. Sure. Even though it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But the way you're capturing it just isn't doing it justice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the same way, you can have a really powerful story, but if you don't capture it properly, yeah, it's just not, it's the, lost. Same. It's not the same. Yeah. And if I were to add a third, it would be that it speaks to some profound um, reality in the human condition, mm-hmm. you know, which maybe is part of the story one. The transcendence part. Mm-hmm. So you got transcendence, good yeah. story, you know, 
and then technically told well. It's the Oreo of a That's classic. That's the Oreo of a classic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and you already mentioned this, um, and I don't want to talk details, but you said, it, I don't remember how you said it, but the pristine plot building. Mm-hmm. So there's this pristine yeah. structural design. An- another moment that comes through for me is um, is the, the Weasley twins big moment. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about like the symbolism and deeper things, um, when you're talking about like the, the, the process of story and alchemy and mm-hmm. all of these other things, there's in the process of story, there's ways to look at it with color. And for example, there's always a red moment. Right. That's like bloody. Yeah. Bad. Uh-huh. Things are and hard. one of those twins has red in his name. Sure. Yeah. But again, I'm not wanting to talk mm-hmm. about any of these things. There's like, it will blow your mind, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it will blow your mind. The details with which these things were constructed and put yeah. together. Amazing. Um, yes. And so, um, Rubeus Hagrid. Mm-hmm. That's like Rubeus is Ru- ruby red. red. Yeah. And there's a very specific plot point in one of the books where he is the the red scene and then it happens mm-hmm. again in the seventh book mm-hmm. okay so anyway mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's just so much if you know to look for it but um okay so pristine plot planning in every individual book and then in the seven books as a whole they're in this ring structure where each book has an identical structure to how the story unfolds mm-hmm. um and then all seven books together accomplish it too mm. it's brilliant it's brilliant. Each book has it accomplishes so, the yes. ring structure. And I actually all of them together I also. Chart. I don't know that we'll get to it. But <laughs> okay, put essentially it in the, show notes. the journey I will. The journey <laughs> there's a beginning to the journey. There's this escape that needs to happen because mm-hmm. of something dangerous that Harry needs to escape. Then there's this mystery, like a question that gets introduced that needs to get solved. There's a crisis moment. Okay, where something happens that it looks like all hope is lost mm-hmm. and then everything starts to fall apart. That's called the descent. And then you've got this fight, like a combat moment where yeah. people's like true colors show. Mm-hmm. And then in that combat moment, there's always a climactic moment of a Christ symbol. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have like um, the Philosopher's Stone book one, the Phoenix in book two, mm-hmm. the Stag in book three. You've got, you know, um, you're saying these are all Christ symbols, Christ symbols. Yes. And so you've got the port keys, um, you know, like saving people. So anyway, um, you got like the Phoenix song, um, and you know, Phoenix swallowing a death curse. You've got, uh, Dumbledore and the hippogriff anyway, like, and eventually, (laughs) Mm-hmm. Something very hap- very important happens in the Christ symbol in the last book, yep. which I'm not going to say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so anyway, there's always a Christ symbol. So there's this like this moment of combat essentially that happens in every book. And then there's a Christ symbol, hmm. something that arrives to save, purify, right. deliver. Yeah. Okay. And then there's this... Um, return back into like safety now that we've processed this through Mm -hmm. that Christ symbol saving Mm -hmm. moment and there's a revelation of something about who we truly are who everybody truly is because we've been purified and our true results have been laid bare through this journey that we've been on so the characters are revealed yeah um and then there's this finish and one thing that's cool about that symbolism so first of all, that's the plot of every book. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's um, the plot of every book. And then all seven books together accomplish the same thing. Right. Yeah. If you, okay. Anyway. Amazing. Um, so this, the seven books each have that literary structure and then all together they form that seven point structure. Um, one thing that's cool and this like really beautiful Christ imagery is the adventure only starts and ends through King's Cross Station. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning and end of every book, including the seventh book that has a slightly different track, yep. um, it still follows the same pattern and it still begins and ends at that station. Yep. Um, and King's Cross Station is in the shape of a cross. a cross. 
And so it's this beautiful lit up with daylight mm-hmm. cross shaped yeah. place it, of journey. The end is essentially a brilliantly lit cross. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's so a, there's a, a vanquishing it's, it's, of evil yes, thing exactly. as well. Yeah. <laughs> and so the idea like the Christian imagery there is the journey begins and ends through the cross. Mm-hmm. Like you begin this transforming experience um, by entering through the cross and then you exit through the cross. It's beautiful. Hmm. Isn't that beautiful? Cool. Dang. It is beautiful. And you know, I would also <laughs> add too, like as you're talking about just all like the major plot points that in the hero's hero's journey and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You often see in hero literature like the 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 hero needs a friend, you know, mm-hmm. they need somebody in their time of need to rescue them. Mm-hmm. And you have that as well. Mm-hmm. And just really quick, like we had been talking about, like everything means something. Like every name, every name of a spell, every name of a building, every mm-hmm. name of a ghost, every you know character, they all have names that mean something. Sometimes it's very profound. Like I just mentioned a few things. Like some of them are clues. Some of them um, point to like plot points that you can look forward to in the future. Some of them are just cute. Like the, um, uh, first of all, there's a lot of like symbolism and imagery where they're like comparing and contrasting people. There's quite a bit of that. Um, And then like, um, there's just like little cute things like the Quidditch chasers Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the Gryffindor team are Alicia Spinnett, Katie Bell, and Angelina Johnson. Um, And so the year that Gryffindor tries to like take back the house cup and they like really want to win yeah. like um they these are the ladies that come in as the chasers mm-hmm. and those are all actually like parts of a church building traditionally mm. okay <laughs> and so the spinet is an organ mm-hmm. it's like a church organ yep. and then there's katie bell like the bell sure. tower and then um angelina johnson mm-hmm. and angel mm. and then they get a new beater when the Weezies leave and his last name is kirk which is the German word church. for church. It's cool. just like all these tiny little silly things yeah. that are just cute. It's awesome. <laughs> but there's also, there's a lot of, um, there's, you will say like these books are good, but um, I think a lot of people will struggle to know like why they're good. But one thing that I think is really, really important to point out is the fact that like we just love patterns. <laughs> and so, um, the reader likely isn't going to notice this while they're reading, but you just find it a good book that's better than other books that you've read and you're not sure why, but this is a big reason why, because subconsciously Mm -hmm. the books are following such a tight pattern and your brain likes patterns. Your brain Mm -hmm. likes to have every character mirrored by another character. Your brain likes to see the pattern of plot, even if you don't recognize that it's there. That's Mm -hmm. why you like it so much, but you've got like all these different characters. Like you're always, this is a really brilliant part about Harry Potter and I'm almost done. But <laughs> good because I gotta that, go soon. I know, but the fact that there's all of these contrasting characters, where there's this constant, obvious contrasting of light and dark, you mm-hmm. know, good character, bad character. So you'll have like Gryffindor versus Slytherin, or Harry versus Malfoy, or Dumbledore yeah. versus Voldemort. All of that, you know, all um, Snape as a teacher versus McGonagall. All sure. these things. There's like these very easy for your brain, right? Black and white, bad, good, bad. Okay, but the beautiful thing about it is there's also a persistent introduction of empathy. Mm -hmm. So you have white hats and black hats, and it's easy for your brain, but then it consistently interrupts that pattern in your brain of wanting to label someone all good or Mm -hmm. all bad by giving you empathy, even for the most vile, evil person in the novels. Malfoy, like it happens. (laughs) Yes, and all of the primary characters that are bad characters. You you see empathy introduced at some point yep. that teaches you a deeper way of understanding people. And you talked about mirrors. So you've got like Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and then you've got Draco and Crabbe and Goyle. Right. You know, like every set, every character has a mm-hmm. counterpoint, hmm. and and they're set up to be good and bad. And then in the end, by the time you finish the books, no one's all bad. Right. No one's all good. And that for Voldemort. is transcendent. No, Voldemort even. That's true. He's got Voldemort a backstory. Voldemort was born under, I will give away a bit of plot. Voldemort was born under the power of a love potion, which means he was born without the ability to love. Mm. Yeah. So how else could he be? Mm-hmm. You know? So even that, even Voldemort, 
he's evil. You can feel something for him. But he was born without the ability to give or receive love. Yeah. So that's going to do something to a person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway. Very bad things. Yes, very terrible. Anyway, listen, those books were pretty good. They were good. (laughs) 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 All right. I confer on you a PhD in Harry Potter. You've just delivered a successful defense of your thesis. I tried to rush through this so hard, but listen, y'all, there were so many things I wish I could have said. So. I can tell. I can tell you. You should just make your own little side podcast, <laughs> and um, just you can take the time that you need. Then can I give people a jumping board if they want to like learn more? There's a really sure. good book by a guy named John Granger, no relation, um, but he. Uh, it's called How Harry Cast His Spell. And he dives into all kinds of stuff related to mm-hmm. this. And it's very much worth your time if you love Harry Potter, if you read it and then want to understand it more. That book is a really good book to pick up. You can get at the library, I'm sure. Okay. Cool. So, all right. good books. Hey. They're, they're pretty good books. This was informative and entertaining. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. So, <laughs> what's coming up on the Nerd Zone? Uh, next episode, I believe, is a is a trifold topic. So, we've got powerlifting. We've got a couple of guests that are going to come on. Um, uh, powerlifting, worship leading, and knitting. Okay. Yes. Nice. So. That'll be fascinating. That will be a fascinating conversation. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see you next time.